0: Hey, everyone, and welcome to The Leading Edge by TechGC. I'm Chris Sands, and if you've been listening to the podcast, you will have noticed the name change from the previous title, Good Counsel. On the show, we strive to have the most thought-provoking discussions around law and cutting-edge technologies, and we felt The Leading Edge was more representative of that. So moving on to today's episode, which is part two of our Autonomous Vehicles series, where we look at the implications of self-driving technology on society, government policy, and on the tech ecosystem. My guest today is Susan Shaheen. Susan is a professor in the Department of Civil Engineering and co-director of the Transportation Sustainability Research Center at the University of California, Berkeley. Susan has a PhD in ecology, focusing on the energy and environmental aspects of transportation from UC Davis, and an MS in public policy analysis from the University of Rochester. She has authored 67 journal articles, over 120 reports and proceedings articles, and has co-edited two books. She's also working on her third book on shared automated vehicles to be published in 2020. In our conversation, we cover the environmental and societal impacts of autonomous vehicles. We talk about transportation technology's effect on social equity, the way cities use their land to set up automated transportation systems, energy sources and sustainability, and some of the emerging products from different autonomous vehicle companies. With that, let's tune into my convo with Susan Shaheen. Susan, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. I want to go into the environmental and societal impacts of autonomous vehicles. And I thought a good starting point would be to discuss your interaction with the European Union. It seems that Europe has been interestingly proactive on the impacts of automated transportation. Can you go into some of the insight into working with the EU and what issues you were looking at?
1: Yeah. So, about a year and a half ago, I had the pleasure of leading the U.S. delegation over to the European Union on behalf of of the United States and the Transportation Research Board, which is part of the National Academies. And we brought a delegation of leading experts over to meet another delegation in the EU. And our focus was definitely on automation and shared mobility types of services, but we had an eye on the socioeconomic effects. So a lot of times you find these to be, particularly in the automated world and connected vehicle worlds, tend to be more technical conversations. So what kind of sensors do you need? What kind of infrastructure do you need? How do you deal with cyber data privacy? Those types of questions. And so what we were looking at was everything from how these technologies will affect people and how they travel, how it will affect social equity, transportation equity. We looked at how it will affect policymakers and other stakeholders, like companies and nonprofit businesses. And we also focused on, goods movement. So we took a very broad lens in looking at these questions, but found that between the EU and the US, we had many similar types of concerns and considerations that could influence our research directions and roadmaps. But we also deviated a bit in some areas. For example, concerns about data privacy tended to be quite a bit more pronounced and elevated, (laughs) and concerns about these modes cannibalized public transit a bit more elevated in Europe, perhaps because they have a larger market share there. But what we found was that there was just so much concern about how these services could affect people. Could they cause people to not have the same level of safety when traveling? So for example, people who make more money or have more money to spend on transportation, would they be able to purchase their way into a safe automated vehicle. If it's public or private, say then somebody who is from a lower income group And might some individuals from lower income groups, even students, for example, be more willing to share access to their private travel data in order to get lower prices? And so how could those effects ultimately change our societal goals, which are really now quite focused on trying to assure that all travelers are treated much more equally than they have been in the past? to close those digital and income divides? And could automation lead to even more biases than we currently have? Could these devices that are built around the notion of machine learning or artificial intelligence build in racial or social biases towards people of different ethnic groups, towards women, for example? So would they be learning our biases and embedding them inside the types of decisions those vehicles make in terms of providing access, mobility and overall services.
0: So the discrimination piece is definitely something that most wouldn't think about when looking at autonomous vehicles. But we are seeing more and more that with automated systems, bias does become a huge issue. You know, Facebook was recently sued by the Department of Housing and Urban Development because their housing ads driven by algorithms were excluding low income and minority groups. Though with transportation as of now, the innovation from companies like Uber and Lyft seem to have done amazing things for consumers and especially those of low income disability, people who are previously not plugged into an efficient and affordable mobility system. Do you agree with that inclusionary effect? And separately, how do you see the environmental effects coming from the new waves of transportation?
1: Yeah, I will say that the income in the digital divide is still present, right? We really do need to do more to close those gaps for people who are not as comfortable with technology or might not have a credit card because you need those to use those types of services or people who don't have the cellular plans to support the data package is needed to use those services. So lots to be done to really close those divides, but there are indications that a broader suite of individuals are using them. So I just want to make sure we're clear on that. Environmental standpoint, these on-demand mobility services have a mixture of effects, right? So for some people, maybe they're able to avoid a car purchase or able to sell a car because now they have access to these services. And for some people, they're able to make first mile, last mile connections, which is more multimodal in nature and more likely to reduce vehicle miles traveled and emissions. And we also see the shared services, which are becoming quite popular, particularly in the larger cities where people can pool, and that often reduces the vehicle miles traveled footprint and also the cost of the services. However, one of the downsides of these services is that there's extra vehicle miles traveled being driven, and this is not unique to transportation network companies. We've seen these same types of effects with empty buses, empty trucks, and also taxis. But a lot of the concern that we hear in cities is that if you have a lot of these cars is driving around, particularly during peak periods, that, that's adding a lot of extra vehicle miles traveled, emissions, and potentially congestion. So those are things that we really need to keep our eye on overall. So the picture from an environmental standpoint, I think is mixed and the jury's still out as these services continue to evolve.
0: And to continue on the environment, I think it's worth talking about energy more broadly. We hear a lot about the electrification of vehicles, but there is rarely mentioned about what energy is used to power that electrification, which from what I can tell is largely powered by fossil fuels. So how are we thinking about the energy sources as we move forward? It seems clear that in order to fuel this new system sustainably, we need highly powerful but clean energy. And in that respect, nuclear energy seems to be the top contender, yet isn't really talked about.
1: Well, there's a lot of discussion about those power sources and how clean are those power sources. And the state of California has a very clean grid relative to other locations, for example, the city of Chicago, which has a less clean grid. So California is looking more and more towards policies that reinforce the notion of carbon net neutrality, which means that we really do have to think holistically from a life cycle standpoint about the power sources for electrification or hydrogen itself. And so it gets more complicated when you try to get to net neutrality. How are you going to get there? Are you going to generate power from the sun? Are you going to generate it from wind power? Are there other more renewable sources of energy that we should be looking at as opposed to looking at the use of fossil fuel-based strategies? And nuclear is one that has regained some degree of popularity. I will tell you, I did a lot of work in my early days of my career regarding nuclear waste management. And it's a tricky topic, right? Is How do we best store nuclear power rods, for example, and ensure safety when they have a very long half-life? So while the notion of nuclear is definitely coming back into the dialogue, I think we need to have a holistic discussion about how we're going to manage and store that waste overall. What options do we have when we look to the future?
0: And speaking of the future, there seems to be a good opportunity for people to think deeply about what kind of world do we want to live in with the advent of automated and electrified transportation? Do we want car ownership to remain a high virtue or should car ownership have much less significance because there are simply better options out there. You know, I recently acquired an electric skateboard where I basically get around everywhere. And it's amazing how when I get behind the wheel of a car now, it feels so isolating in comparison. My personal view is that a society where people are more mobile, yet more interactive in their environment and community would be a much more vibrant culture. Is that realistic? What are your views on that?
1: Yeah, well, when you look at, say, European cities, for example, in the Netherlands, that really made the conscious choice to move away from an auto-dominated reality and to, from a public policy standpoint, invest more heavily in bike and pedestrian infrastructure, right? How did they go about doing this? Well, they started to remove the car parking and they started to rethink the use of the infrastructure and the rights of or the roads, right? And they used public policy to ban or limit the road use for private vehicles and private vehicle ownership. And so that resulted in a really dramatic change in the modal split. So much more favoring people getting on bikes and walking and getting around without reliance on a car. So we've got these templars, right? These models that we can look at for inspiration that have been Really quite successful. You know, Singapore, for example, has also moved more to a much more multimodal reality by using a different mechanism. And that mechanism really involves the pricing of the infrastructure. So making it more expensive to use a private vehicle and banning it in certain locations and cities. And that results in a lot more people having a demand for a multimodal transit-based lifestyle and a lot more money available to put into the public transportation infrastructure. So perhaps when we think about the U.S., particularly these denser urban areas or areas where we want to densify them, thinking about the use of that infrastructure, do we want it all dedicated to car parking and car use? Do we want to replace that with more dedicated infrastructure for walking, cycling, and scooters and get rid of some of that parking infrastructure and densify? And do we want to start considering the role of pricing and pricing action access to the curb into the road itself to start to prepare ourselves for that future we want to live in that is more connected, automated and electrified.
0: And so to close, can you provide some insight into the automated vehicle companies out there and what approaches they're using to enhance transportation and mobility?
1: Well, I think the autonomous vehicle companies, right? They come in different shapes and sizes and philosophies, and that includes the automakers themselves. So there's some that are much more Focused On fleets and fleet type services and others that are much more focused on a private autonomous or automated vehicle itself for ownership in a household. And so those philosophies appear in different ways, right? So there's several companies, for example, Easy Mile, you might have heard of, right, that are really focused on a low speed automated shuttle. And that philosophy is at lower speed, these automated vehicles are safer and possibly better for the environment. If they're electric and they're shared and pooled, can they be used to provide connectivity uh, to public transit systems? Can they be used as circulator shuttles on employment campuses? And so there's some that really have a philosophy of not going towards this high-speed, fully functional auto in an autonomous format, but in a transitional, low-speed, shared automated format. So I think the philosophies and attitudes towards this are very different. And some companies that we work with tell us a lot that the cities often look to them to tell them what they should do. And a lot of those companies say, no, the cities should decide what kind of city they want. The citizens themselves, the people who travel and work there and live there, what kind of world do they want? And then tell us how to design the vehicle itself to meet those needs. So do you develop a vehicle that has individual pods in it so people still have some degree of privacy in a vehicle? So it's a pulled vehicle, like a transit vehicle, but there's sort of more privacy associated with the design of them? Or is it a low-speed automated shuttle? Or is it a series of very small pod-like vehicles. It really is for those cities, I think, what we're hearing to decide. And then the vehicle companies and manufacturers would design those types of vehicles to meet those needs.
0: This has been part two of our Autonomous Vehicles series. If you liked it, please rate and review us on your podcast app. And if you want to go deeper into the world of law and technology, you can follow TechGC on LinkedIn and Twitter. Once again, I'm Chris Sands and thanks for tuning in.